Hi there. Thanks for listening to WERU Community Radio. My name is Kate. I am hosting Down East in Action today, a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan, a comprehensive plan introduced by Janet Mills last year. Please enjoy conversations from Tony and Ann Ferrara of Climate Action Net, based on the peninsula, and Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive on MDI. Up first are Tony and Ann from Climate Action Net. Please enjoy. For the listeners, what is the mission of your organization and in what ways does CAN's mission overlap with the Maine Climate Action Plan and its goals? Climate Action Net is a project-oriented organization and at times solar energy is in our sights, at times organizing a high school ecology club is the goal. Sometimes, uh, recently, we were involved in a project called the Intergenerational Climate Conversation, which <clears throat> involved 60-plus uh, people who registered and participated in the uh, conversation, where there was a good mixture of adults, elders, uh, and youth. And uh, the feedback that we're getting is that Many of the older people were very impressed with the degree of commitment and uh, alertness and competence and energy of the young people. Getting back to your question, another main emphasis of Climate Action Net is working with the young and having an active youth program. And to that extent, we have four or five high school interns Uh, They've been from Mount Desert Island High School, Deer Isle Stonington High School, and George Stevens Academy. And Lincoln Academy. And Lincoln Academy. Yes, that's right. And um, I'm just going to jump in and to generalize, we are committed to climate literacy, to trying, trying to bring as much science and as much information about the climate actions that are taking place to as as many listeners as we can. So having the young as a part of our organization is very important because we want to be sure that they are heard and they are affirmed and they know that they have allies who are willing to work with them given the situation that is being handed to them in terms of the uh, climate emergency that they are inheriting from us. So I think it's just uh, important to emphasize that education is a really important part of what we're doing, science-based climate policy, and amplifying the voices of the young. If you'd like some additional examples of projects that we've been involved in the past, and if you're interested, projects that are coming up that we're engaged in, at this time, one would be the Greenhouse Project. It's a project by which we, with a friend, Tom Adamo, proliferated more than 100 greenhouses in the down east and, uh, and near uh, and mid-coast areas, uh, with at least a dozen going to schools, including Brooksville Elementary School. 
We also did a few community builds with uh, Window Dresses, which was an organization where the product is an insulated window panel that saves CO2 emissions. Very effective. I'm part of the Sea Level Rise and Climate Change Committee for Brooksville. It's uh, basically a community resilience. Under its present auspices, we're involved in a more regional approach to uh, rising tides. So there's really a lot going on. Uh, and in the past, both Penobscot and Brooksville have signed contracts to receive their uh, energy, their electric energy from solar. So you spoke a little bit about why it was important for young people to get involved, but why would you say it's important for people of all age groups to collaborate on climate issues? Having the experience, it seems so obvious that the young rejuvenate, and I think that's the right word, the older people and excite them. And the older people seem to give some kind of support and guidance, affirmation that, you know, this is very important. And if we're going to be serious about a you know radical change or remedy to the climate crisis, we're really talking uh, about a multi-generational effort. Older people want to contribute to the young people's org climate organizations. They also wanted to report how impressed they were with, as I said, the seriousness and the energy of the young people. I mean, one of the ideas that came up during the conversation from the elders is that we feel, many of us feel a tremendous amount of guilt and responsibility for not having done more sooner. So we are so grateful, at least, to have this opportunity, a little bit of atonement, I guess, to work with the young and do what we can to support what they're doing. And it's mostly, you know, listening and really trying to understand where they're coming from. And where they're coming from is a place of intersectionality, a place of connecting the dots. So they are not going to be satisfied with climate justice. They are concerned with all of the justice issues being interconnected. So it's, you know, uh, economic inequity, it's social inequity, it's uh, the climate, it's health. It just goes on and on. One of the questions that was addressed to the young people was, well, how did you get involved or why did you get involved with climate action? Why are you an activist? And one of the young ladies, you know, said, with all of the information that, you know, we know, it's really a no-brainer that you have to do something about with this information. I think people in my generation were, when we were educated, we were taught to observe and understand. I think the young people nowadays are taught to understand and to act. That's a very interesting point that you brought up about um, to learn and understand, because I think I think you're perceiving it as a natural um, reaction of young people to act, but 
I think some people, I think it might also just be a mindset thing. It's, it's hard for people to make that connection sometimes that things don't have to be the way that they are originally perceived. Just because things are a certain way doesn't mean they can't change. In a sense, the question that follows that is, I'm only one individual. What, you know, the problem is so vast. I, I can't, what, what can I do? And the answer is become part of a collective. Every listener at this moment can simply make a telephone call or an email to one of the environmental or climate organizations and get involved. I went to a, a meeting that had 300 young people, the change makers. It was so impressive the way you know they were able to communicate and work together and organize things. And they're so politically astute. I mean, all, all that's really needed is for everyone to do something or for everyone to do whatever they can. I'm glad you spoke about that because that was one of the questions I was going to ask. How can listeners get involved and help create change in their daily lives? The website address, it's www.climateactionnet. There's a bill before the legislature at this time called the Pine Tree Amendment, and many, many individuals and organizations are trying to help out that it would be actually written into the state constitution. It wouldn't be something that would have to be negotiated in the courtroom whether we did or did not have the right to a healthy environment, we would only have to litigate whether laying a pipe across water was problematic or not. So it's a big, big issue. It's on the website. It's on, uh, yes, the Climate Action Net website very prominently. And there's another piece of legislature, and that's LD99, the Municipal Union Pension Funds should not invest or divest themselves, it's a divestment effort, should divest itself from fossil fuel stocks. Connect with Pine Tree Amendment, connect with the divestment, pension divestment fund, uh, write the letters, but connect with organizations and, you know, plan local. We at Climate Action Net have about a dozen counselors, some of whom are uh, truly uh, respected, uh, claimed climate scientists, citizens' climate lobby, connect with them. They're a very creative group. They're always doing something marvelously. And they're committed to bipartisanship. So whenever they get a Democratic congressperson to come on board, they have to find a Republican to match it. And they do that by going down and speaking directly to the Congress people. They've been doing it for several years and they do have more and more coming on board. We have some poetry from the young on our website and very, very powerful. It's, it's certainly worth a look to uh, see Anne, Anna Trowbridge read, uh, you shall reap what you sow. The baseball cap that I saw, which had the quote on it, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Art certainly has an enormous place to play in terms of touching people's hearts, 
because the mind only takes us so far. We can have a lot of information that's intellectually valid, and we don't necessarily act on it. But when you see a painting, when you hear a poem, when you are moved by music or dance, these are all amazing modalities that really touch people in very deep ways. We were involved in a climate note card project as recently with the Deer Isle Stonington High School Ecology Club. The cards are beautiful. If anyone would like to order them, go to our website and you could order uh, you know, a dozen or so. But what was very interesting is that the, the faculty, the art person, uh, Cynthia Pease, introduced the topic of climate change to just an average with no particular burning interest in climate change. It's more basketball or whatever. But she simply encouraged them to use the computer, check it out, you know, explore, find out what it's all about. And the young people, I think, to a person got very much involved in making a statement, an artistic statement. And the, the, the photo, the paintings are really, really very, very amazing for just an, a non-selected, unselected group. They became very, very concerned you know, with the climate situation. So I think that's testimony to the fact that education can be very, very powerful. Rob Shetley's Americans Who Tell the Truth, over 300 paintings, uh, and many many of the newer ones are involved in the climate concerns too. Hi again. Thank you for listening to Kate with Downies in Action. I hope you are enjoying this discussion with Tony and Ann Ferrara from Climate Action Net on their efforts to reach the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. Something related to both art and education was the climate conference from a few years ago in Blue Hill. I don't know your exact involvement or if you ran it, but if you could tell yeah, me more about it. that. Yes, yes, that was a big deal. We uh, And we did run it. It's the Climate Convergence Conference. Mm-hmm. And it was a convergence of you know, all different kinds of people, but it was really also a convergence between the climate scientists. And we had three or four high level, high profile climate scientists there, but social scientists as well, because the social scientists addressed the question, what is necessary to get people engaged? But it was a very exciting uh, with workshops going on. And we had uh, Anya, one of our co-keynote speakers was Anya Wright. And she's the youth ambassador to the Maine Climate Council. Anna Siegel is also, she was also a speaker at that convention. She is also part of the Maine Climate Council. I must say is when I follow the main climate council, they are doing such impeccable work. So would you say that organizations and scientists working together magnifies their influence? Absolutely. And and I forgot to mention when I was talking about a confluence or convergence, that we also had Elaine Hughes doing the spirituality of the climate situation. Many, many, many churches are on board 
they want to do earth literacy. They want to do, uh, they are doing the green sanctuary movements. And I just want to add in terms of that convergence, it was also, we were sponsored by probably more than 20 organizations, including local businesses. So again, it's everybody's voice is necessary. The problem is so big, it is going to take all of us. So not only obvious environmental organizations, and in particular climate organizations, but just justice organizations also and spiritual that was a that was a very big event that involved probably nearly a hundred volunteers to put it on and then there were several hundred people and it was the hottest day of the year <laughs> Jeez. and george stevens academy doesn't have air conditioning <laughs> and there was a follow-up gathering after the Convergence Conference that we held at Tinder Hearth. We were able to provide a soup and bread supper for well over 100 people. And uh, people were able to meet with others who were concerned about the same aspect of the climate emergency that they are concerned about. For some, it's food sustainability. For some, it's energy. For some, it's livelihood. So uh, housing. Uh, and then we had a lot of, uh, we had an open mic, so a lot of really good music and poetry reading. We have to be able to come together and celebrate with music and art and food. It's by, you know, that kind of communing together that gives us the uh, strength and uh, desire to continue to stay in the struggle. And it, it seems that we're going through a whole repertoire of things that we've been involved in in the past. I should mention the Tent Project, which is a community resilience project, and that would be Dick and Carol Greger, who are growing an enormous amount of food, giving it to the community, and the school also, the Brooksville Elementary School, and it deals or addresses with, uh, addresses the area of food security and local food production, and we work closely with them, just like we do with all of the other organizations, whether they be environmental, maritime, maritime. And the work that you're doing, it's very diverse, and it does seem to tie in the economic and the social justice and all the different factors together, which is, I didn't know if you wanted to speak more on the fact that it's all interrelated. Just that the recent bywords are green and just. They just have to have to go together. One of the ideas that was spoken about in depth at the University of Maine Law School Women for Justice gathering was the importance of understanding the danger of commodification. And we can't solve the crisis that we're in by exploiting the earth even more than we already are. So again, the justice issues have to be interrelated. We always used to say in the peace movement, the only way to achieve peace is to be peaceful on the whole journey. And the same has to be true of what we do to solve our climate crisis. We have to be doing it in a way that is really respectful of the earth, that understands the, how the earth is interconnected and 
how our appreciation for it and our love for it will not allow us to do things that are harmful as we try to correct the situation. Climate Action Net actually came out of Reversing Fall Sanctuary. Now, Reversing Fall Sanctuary is a very creative organization in its own right. And many years ago, we started with the SELF uh, conference, S-E-L-F. It was Shelter, Energy, Livelihood, and Food. We were looking at a community resiliency. That was the first time I was introduced to what a heat pump was and how it works. Uh, uh, growing your own food, that's where uh, the greenhouse project came from. Then we went to, if some readers, some listeners may know, the transition town movement. And it was all about what would happen when we run out of oil. What that group didn't foresee, the fact that we learned how to do horizontal drilling and go around corners and open up every bit of underground oil. It, we, were in, we were in that direction of caring for the earth. In fact, one of our ecology was bringing ecological awareness to the community. And that's what we were doing with those kind of programs. And just to indicate that uh, reversing falls and we're still uh, connected with it in some ways. I was just thinking about the horizontal pipes. It's it's amazing <laughs> the efforts people will put in to do very complicated, expensive, and overall negative things. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah. You know, it, it just boggles the mind. But we come up with these ideas. Our big task ahead of us is that most of our high school climate interns are graduating. And uh, so we'll be looking for uh, young people who are willing to uh, put their shoulder to the wheel and uh, take, take it on, take on the challenge and do some organizing in their school. Yeah. So what sort of things do they normally do? Do they start clubs in schools? Do they work with organizations? The uh, Ecology Club? I know that they're involved with the Island Institute and they're monitoring sea level rise. Also, the Island Heritage Trust works closely with the, uh, with the club. Looking into getting solar for the school facilities, having composting available. Yes, getting gardening and um, trying to get plastics out of the cafeteria. You know, there'll be no single-use plastics. I know in George Stevens Academy, they're also looking at getting solar energy and um, trying to um, just give information to the students, to their fellow students, about the different climate actions that are taking place. If uh, people haven't made compost, it's always a magical experience. <laughs> when, when we first got involved with forming a community-supported agriculture farm down on Long Island in New York, where we were living, it was just, uh, you know, that was just such an important part of it was that you would be able to 
grow food for people. You would be able to educate people about the growing of the food and, and show, you know, the magic of the composting process. That was when we learned that the true farmers are the microbes in the soil. We think we're doing it, but, you know, we're just an adjunct. The real work is taking place by, by nature. We're just getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, most of the time. <laughs> taking it back to the Climate Action Net as an organization, what are your short-term goals coming up? The idea of, or the project, of electrifying the educational complex in Deer Isle Stonington via solar is a big, big project. It involves eventually getting the approval of the school board, first the administration, but then the school board. And then the school complex is uh, supported by two towns. So you need the approval of both towns. The approval could take the form of requiring an article that would involve voting. So it gets complicated and long, the procedure. So we'll be chipping away at that uh, and using this framework as a guide to help develop the young people to learn how to coordinate, learn how to send out the proper emails, how to organize, what to do, uh, publicity, strategy. So it's part of training the young people uh, and developing them to be more effective agents of change as well as it's a long, uh, very long process. So this is this will occupy us for a while. There is a regional meeting that's coming up that will involve seacoast integrity. Are there any additional resources that CAN is lacking that it would benefit from having? It would be, it would be nice to have a core group. I mean, we have, as I said, a dozen counselors that interact to have a core group uh, planning the projects. What is your proudest moment having been involved with CAN? When a major event, a major presentation that has so many elements and so many places where it could go wrong and become some snafus, when regardless uh, that it it all works out. And, and just reflecting that some of our projects require 25 people, 50 people, and even 100 people to put on. And that the willingness of the, that delights me the most is that the community that we are interacting with is so generous, sensitive, accommodating. And then it's just a matter of surrendering oneself and the project to the good wishes of the community. Okay, so this is actually my last question. It's not an official question, but when I was on the phone with you to set up this meeting, you had some wonderful quotes, and I didn't know if you wanted to share any quote with the public. One of of the quotes that uh, has been really foundational for us is from Thomas Berry, who said, the world is not a collection of objects but a communion of subjects. I also love the story that Robin Wall Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, told about one of her students who was graduating last year. And Robin was apologizing 
for the world that this student was entering in terms of the climate catastrophe that was unfolding. And the young woman said, what, don't you know this is the most wonderful time to be alive? And Robin said, does she not know what's going on? (laughs) And then the young woman said, the reason why I love being alive right now, because I know that every single thing I do matters. We are the first generation to foresee the climate catastrophe brought about by human activity, and yet the last generation to be able to forestall it. The play in the words of foresee and forestall, I thought was very good when I read it. The familiar quotation, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, Victor Hugo. I think that's really true, that when enough people see the situation, the reality, as clearly as the scientists are trying to communicate it, a radical change will take place. The major changes aren't going to be climactic. It's going to be more in the area of social disorder, uh, climate refugees, economic system, not functioning and providing as many services and certainly comforts. The road ahead is very, very treacherous. Well, hopefully we will. Hopefully (laughs) we will emerge triumphant. (laughs) Yes, and we will all do the next right thing. This is just a reminder that you are listening to WERU Community Radio. Thank you for listening to Down East in Action, a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. You just heard my interview with Tony and Ann Ferrara of Climate Action Net. We're going to transition now to an interview with Johanna Blackman, the Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive. First of all, if you'd like to start with explaining the mission and goals of A Climate to Thrive and how those align with the main climate action plan, in your opinion. Sure. So um, A Climate to Thrive is a grassroots organization that started on Mount Desert Island um, in 2016. And our goal is to work um, as a community to achieve energy independence by 2030 and also to make, in the process, make MDI an inspiring epicenter of citizen engagement, sustainability, and economic vitality. When I pan out to think about the Maine Climate Action Plan, of course, first of all, um, they have the goal of achieving state carbon neutrality by 2045. And I think that, um, you know, obviously energy is a huge, huge, huge piece of that. And um, our work around energy independence aligns a lot with that goal. But I think that, you know, the whole concept of the Maine Climate Action Plan is to make Maine an, a model and an inspiration uh, for the rest of the country and beyond, and to show what can be done at the statewide level. And to set, so when we started A Climate to Thrive, you know, our whole thing was to set an ambitious goal and then really work to achieve it. And so I see that work happening with the main climate action plan as well. Even though your goals are ambitious, when I go on your website, I see a whole list of accomplishments. Maybe you can speak to some of those. It's hard to believe it's only been five years. Um, So we've 
done a lot in those five years. Um, we have increased the solar production on the island. I believe it now stands at at five times over where it was at before we before we started. In our first, one of our first projects was Solarize MDI, and in just basically a summer, we doubled the solar capacity of the island through that project. Um, so solar has been a huge part of our work. We were instrumental in helping the high school on the island go solar. Um, which is now becoming a model for high schools throughout the state. We've also been um, involved in establishing a corridor of EV charging stations throughout down East Maine and throughout Hancock County. Um, we um, ha- run a program called Sustainable MDI that has worked with over 60 local restaurants and hospitality businesses to help support them in increasing the sustainability of their operations. So, you know, resource um, management, what they're, what they're purchasing and how they're handling waste, reducing single use plastics has been a big piece of that. Supporting the declarations of climate emergency in the various towns and then the plans that have come out of that work. We have a thriving internship program and supporting youth um, and young climate activists has been a big part of our work. Um, We run a program called the Hancock County Energy Audit Program, which um, helps supply energy audits to small businesses throughout Hancock County, looking at improving energy um, optimization energy efficiency. Uh, We also have a project called the Climate Resilience Partnership that works with kind of larger scale organizations um, and businesses to help them develop and implement a climate action plan for their organization or business. Um, And so we kind of serve as, I guess, basically a sustainability coordinator um, throughout that process. And then we have been involved in state and local policy and just making sure that, you know, policy is supporting the type of solutions that need to happen to address climate change and build um, resilience in the communities around this area. Oh, and then finally, we we have an education program. And I think education is, is a key piece of this. And I'll be really interested to see what the Maine Climate Council does around education. And that has been a big theme, education and youth involvement in a lot of the inter- interviews I've been conducting. What role do you see young people playing in climate action? I think (laughs) that they have been playing more of a role than they should have to, is the first thing I would say. That they appreciate the reality and urgency around um, this situation and around the climate crisis and are doing an outstanding job of bringing that urgency and realism um, into the spheres of policy um, and governance and decision-making. And I think that they will continue to play an essential role. I would love to see more intergenerational equity around the tables where solutions are developed and implemented. I think that, you know, climate change is perhaps one of the largest examples of intergenerational injustice ever. And that young people have a wealth um, of ideas and insights to contribute when it comes to developing and, and implementing solutions that they you know, deserve a seat at the table um, 
much more of a seat than, than they have right now. That being said, I hope that we don't think that we can just place the burden on them to do all the work and would love to see more intergenerational collaboration that's really meaningful where adults are stepping up to the plate and and listening to the call that youth are making right now. How do you think we can engage everyone? Like what how do you incentivize people to feel like this matters? Yeah, that's been a huge question for Climate to Thrive because um, you know, we're, we are a grassroots movement and to make our project successful, it's all about reaching as broad a spectrum of the community as we possibly can. And so I think that, you know, the, the first step is a lot of listening. Um, and for us, you know, a great example of that is the Climate Resilience Partnership, where we go in and we meet with a business or an, or an organization. And yes, like they've already made that first step of agreeing to a meeting with us. But before we start making any kind of proposals around what they could or should do, uh, a lot of listening takes place where we get a lot of information from them. And that listening can tell us a lot about what the motivation might be and how what to speak to, you know, what might be economic incentives, what might be um, emotional, you know, psychological incentives. Um, because I think that, you know, climate is such a all-encompassing challenge. And so whatever people are, are interested in, you can get to climate change. <laughs> like it's <laughs> going to impact everything. So um, it's about doing the listening work to find that connection and then making that connection in a compelling way um, that you're, you're speaking to the possibility contained in the challenge and the incredible benefits on so many levels of doing the work right now to build solutions. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about the interrelatedness of different issues? Well, for example, recently I was in a series of meetings looking at the future of tourism on MDI and climate change and how those two will intersect and how, you know, very likely we're going to have a lot more tourists as other places become hotter and then what that will look like to the infrastructure of our tourism industry and also the opportunity that we have to meet the challenge of that extra traffic and that extra usage of the island, which includes extra waste, right? It includes um, extra emissions, you know, how to meet that in a way where we're doing the planning in advance so that um, we can we can take that extra load um, and not also increase the impact, like negative impacts on our community. So being resilient in the face of that change. You know, an example that people often talk about, of course, is, is the different... Um, marine economies in Maine, lobstering being a key one and how climate's going to impact that. It's everywhere because it's going to transform our ability to, like we think the pandemic was major, you know, in the way that it changed, like what we were able to do on a daily basis, but the impacts of climate are going to also change like our, our capacity to go about our daily lives. And so if we plan in advance, we're going to be a lot more resilient in the face of those changes. I don't know who said the quote, but humans 
are supposedly the only creature capable of foresight and we don't use it. <laughs> that's so, yep. That's so profound. Yeah. It's really, it's a huge challenge. And, and that again, I think is where young people have been incredible at having foresight and we all need to be equally adept at doing so. And I think that, you know, something that we've explored a lot um, in ACT through our educational program. And I think, you know, I see with the main climate action plan, you know, attempts to do this as well. And I hope it continues and deepens is how to reframe this from being a challenge to being an opportunity. And that there's clearly so much within the way our societies and our communities are structured that's not serving people well anymore and certainly not serving non-human species well. And we have this opportunity to do things differently. And I think that the other thing, like humans aren't great at foresight, we're also so resistant to change. And so like doing that that short-term work of change to get to something long-term that will be a much more fulfilling, better way of living in communities is, is a huge challenge for us, but it is also such an opportunity. Yeah. And I think that that's where solutions come into play and, and giving people an opportunity to participate in, in enacting those solutions. And that's what I've seen to be so effective in ACT's work is that, you know, we've gone straight towards solutions focused action and involve community members wherever they want to be involved at every step of the way. And so people you know, can engage in such an overwhelming topic like climate change and, and actually do something and see it realized in their community that will have a really long-term impact. Um, and I think, you know, with the, with the main climate action plan, hopefully that's just going to be happening at a statewide level. Um, and my hope is that through implementation, they involve localized community-based action really highly because I think that there are such outstanding examples of that happening in Maine, you know, ACT being one of them, but there's many other examples as well. And I think that the Climate Action Plan and implementation is the opportunity to look to those um, those groups that are already doing the work and and build off of that and involve, really involve communities rather than it being top down, like building these solutions bottom up. And, you know, the challenge of of doing it at the statewide level, which is super exciting. Hi there. Thank you again for listening to Kate with Down East in Action. I hope you are enjoying this discussion with Johanna Blackman on a Climate to Thrive's efforts to meet Maine's Climate Action Plan goals. Let's hear a little more. Aside from statewide, there are just there's community and there's also individual. So how do you see individuals helping with the cause versus or with the community? I um, became, you know, really concerned about climate change probably a dozen years ago or so. And one of the first things I picked up and read was No Impact Man, which was this book about a man living in New York City trying to take away all of his, his kind of carbon, climate, waste, everything impact, um, which of course, you know, through the course of the book, he realizes he can't do that. And that was a journey that I went down for a long time was that focus on reducing individual carbon footprint and really like obsessing about different elements of that, you know, as he did noticing how difficult it is to do that. Like we don't have good public transportation. Um, 
electric vehicles are not, they're getting much less expensive, but in many cases, they're still, you know, inaccessible for many people. That just being one example. And it's because the system is stacked against that kind of living, right? And so when we think about the impact of one individual's carbon footprint, which the interesting thing about like the whole concept of carbon footprinting is that it was really kind of pushed out there by um, fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry to kind of take our mind off the bigger problem and feel like we as individuals uh, have all the responsibility to fix this. Um, but you know, our individual carbon footprint is such a, such a tiny piece of the puzzle and that it really like comes down to systemic change, like has to do this at the same time for so many people, individual action is like the, the foot in the door. It's the way to start. And for many of us, it's also kind of like throughout our day, our choices around what we eat and how we get from here to there, how often we try to get from here to there or what light bulbs we put in are kind of like reinforcers of our values and help kind of keep us involved in the larger systemic change. So I, I think it's a both and I think it's, you know, making those individual changes in your life recognizing that that alone of course is not going to do it but can be great kind of inspiration or keep you going while absolutely having your eye to the the larger more significant challenge of of systemic change and i think that that can st- absolutely start at the community level and so you know one of the most important things that we can do is get together with other people which is you know becoming easier again and talk about climate change and talk about solutions and talk about our communities and talk about what we can do in our communities to change that system of how we've been living and build something different. And, you know, that conversation is now happening at the statewide level in Maine, which is awesome. Is there any current legislation that you're watching that the public should know about? There's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I am, so this is me personally, um, not specifically related to a climate to thrive, but um, the pine tree amendment is something that I'm watching really closely. um, And that act, you know, also is is watching initiate the initiative around a consumer owned utility is something that I'm watching. And so our power is the organization that's really um, pushing that forward. Um, I think that um, the the bill around tribal sovereignty is is actually a really important part of this puzzle right now. And then just generally bills around solar, um, renewable energy, the ability to make that more accessible to more people. Um, that's kind of you know going to be a huge, huge piece of this puzzle in the next few years. Are there other resources that act? doesn't have that it could benefit from funding yeah (laughs) (laughs) always funding (laughs) um yes legislative action and policy and funding I think are two well they would be two of three key pieces of the puzzle the third piece would be the community engagement but I feel like we've got that and it continues to build here on MDN MDI and I'm so grateful for that um, and to have felt it even through this year of shutdown 
um, particularly through our educational program and all the people that turned out for that and, and had conversations with us over Zoom. But I think that like those three things, when they come together, when you have the right policies in place, you have funding available and you have a community like ready to do the work, then, then you're golden. How has COVID kind of affected how your organization has been able to continue its efforts? It's actually been a great year. I think, you know, we would have preferred to have been able to not have this happen and be in person with people and be marching into lots of different businesses and organizations and networking and and building collaboration. But we still have done a lot of that this year. You know, it was slower at first as we acclimated to the new territory. Um, And we were just getting ready to launch our education program when COVID hit, but we moved it online. And it's been a great opportunity, actually, because we've been able to have people from all over be part of our education program as opposed to just um, people from MDI. We've, you know, always need more funding support but have also been so grateful for the support we've continued to receive this year during COVID and people, the people who have clearly seen that and that we need to be preparing and building that resilience in our communities and in our states. Um, so, you know, it, it, it required creativity, but I think that that's the heart of addressing climate change anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's so many ways in which the pandemic like increased our awareness of like global interconnection, you know. And one of the great ways is that we've had the opportunity to connect more more broadly with each other. Can you describe to me a little bit more about your educational program that you just started? Yeah, so we um launched that this past fall. So in the fall, we were preparing to launch it um, in April, 2020, and then just postponed it, you know, so for the first like bit, we really shifted focus to supporting kind of local um, resources and support around the pandemic. And then, you know, once that got its feet on the ground in September, we rolled out our educational program and we've done monthly events since then. And each one explores a different topic um, and they're, they've been over Zoom. Someday they'll be in person, <laughs> not not super soon. They bring in speakers from, you know, primarily we try to prioritize speakers from the state of Maine. Um, we had one that looked at comparing the Maine climate plan with Biden's climate plan and talked about like how people could support each of those. And recordings of all of our past events are on our website at aclimatethrive.org. Um, so people can watch those um, and watch for upcoming events. And then this fall, um, we'll kind of roll out our second year of of the the project of our educational events. And that year we'll build around a theme. Um, so I'm excited for that as well. So we talked a lot about things that you have already done. And I guess you just got the educational program going. So I don't know if you have any new programs coming up or some short-term goals that you're looking to reach this year? Absolutely. So um, we have a program called Electrify MDI that we're preparing to roll out that will look at um, bringing heat pumps 
so electrifying like the heating source for as many homes on the island as possible. Um, and we'll pair that with efforts around weather weatherization. Um, so efficiency of heating. We um, are going to be expanding solar with various new projects. Um, so people can watch our website for that and for information on those projects and different opportunities to access solar in a lot of different ways. Um, the CRP, the Climate Resilience Partnership, is going to be increasing and broadening as well as sustainable MDI um, will also be increasing and broadening. And we just rolled out um, extending our um, EV charging station program into um, the Blue Hill Peninsula area. So there's, yeah, so there's um, on our EV page on our website, there's um, information about how different businesses and organizations can apply for funding to install a charging station if they're interested in doing so. So that's um, an expansion that happened recently. And then we're looking towards establishing a microgrid on MDI. Which oh. will be really like that is that is one of the big pieces of the pathway towards energy independence by 2030. So that'll be exciting and coming down the pipeline soon, hopefully. Geez Louise. Pipeline well, is not the right word, by the way, for a climate talk. <laughs> the non-pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I, I picked up on it, but <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's awesome. But you've only been around for five years. So is this is this progress, this rate of progress unusual? I don't know a lot about it, but it seems... I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's certainly exciting, but I think it's super possible. I think it's super possible anywhere. We, we, we've been able to attract great people who possess knowledge um, and different types of resources around these projects. Funding is always like the one thing that slows down action, I think for us, but the people have been outstanding. And I think that that's been why we've been able to move so quickly is because we've had people come with the right set of tools and knowledge and skills to help build towards the next step. This is a silly question based on what you just said and everything I know about ACT, but I guess you probably don't face a lot of pushback from the town with your projects? Well, so we've got four towns on MDI, which is um, kind of, I think, cool, a cool element of our work that, you know, we're not only working with one town. And so with each of the four towns, there's different characteristics. Um, But, you know, work with the towns has been some of like our most important goals and work that we've had over the past five years. And so, you know, Bar Harbor, um, declared a climate emergency, Mount Desert just joined them. Um, and so there's, you know, great work in, in, in all the towns. Tremont has an incredible solar installation that powers all their municipal operations. It's been great to, whenever we do have the support of the towns and, you know, to also try to offer our support to the towns. Because um, I think that a lot of the planning around resilience is going to happen at the town level. So far, what has been your proudest moment with ACT? Seeing the high school go solar was, has been pretty incredible. But I think that like, it's hard for me to pick one moment. I think it's any time that I witness the swell of community engagement around the project 
those feel like very proud moments because I think the most important thing that ACT is doing is providing members of the community with an avenue for meaningful climate action and connecting them to their unique set of strengths and skills that they can contribute to being part of a solution. So anytime I I see that coming together where a lot of different people are involved in a meaningful way, that's, those are my proudest moments. And the high school going solar would be one example of that. Thank you again for listening to WERU Community Radio. We have reached the end of our programming today of Down East in Action, a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. Our guests today were Tony and Ann Ferrara of Climate Action Net, which is based on the peninsula, and Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of the Climate to Thrive on MDI. You can find out more about what these organizations are doing and contact them at their websites, climateactionnet.org and aclimatetothrive.org. Stay tuned next month for interviews with Downey Salmon Federation and Green Ellsworth.